Uh, we're continuing. This is the fourth week of our Strong Church series. And uh, the, the whole series is pointed at covering some of the essentials for a, a strong individual disciple, as well as a cumulative strong church of disciples who come together to form a strong church. Now, as a tool for this, we have uh, these workbooks. There is a a couple of them by the door in a little basket. Each week has its own set of pages. Uh, We're going to be on this one today. And then also in the very back is a, what we're calling a PDP, a personal discipleship plan. That's a really simple tool that works through three categories of, of basic disciplines, commitments, joys that you can like work into your life, especially over the course of the summer. Now, this week, week four, is a bridge week. It's a little bit unique uh, because the last three weeks were focused on the gospel, right? That the gospel is central, that we enjoy the gospel as central through the sacraments, that we enjoy the gift of the gospel, which is God's attention, right? So those are all gospel-related. Now we're, in the next couple weeks, going to look into community, and then the couple weeks beyond that, we're going to look into missional living. But today is important because it is all about simplicity, It is a key Christian way of living that creates space. It creates the necessary space for delight in the gospel, the necessary space for delight in community, and the necessary space for delight in mission. So here is today's teaching title. Simplicity. Hurry and consumption is a threat to your discipleship and our church. And I would love to know, as that sits... Would you shout out right now, like, how does this make you feel? Does that make you feel anxious, defensive, liberated? How do you feel? Defensive? Yeah. Convicted? Uh-oh. Tired. I'm already tired. Anyone else? How does this make you feel? I've got one more question for you. Uh, so fill in the blank of this sentence. This is, if I imagine I say, hey, you know, Bowman, how are you? How are, so this is kind of for everyone. Shout out, hey, how are you? You'd probably respond, good, just, good, just busy. Good, just tired. Would you raise your hand if one of those two responses is you? So look around the room. Okay, hang on, Robinson, get it up. Get, none of this like... So hands in the air, look around the room and notice this. Good, just busy, spans, keep your hands up for a moment, it spans generation, it spans gender, it spans income. Thank you, you can put your hands down. My point is, this is not a rare disease. This is a prevalent condition that affects all of us and hurry and consumption together Leave us anxious, tired, discontent, lethargic, and in survival mode. Uh, my wife, Whitney, used to work um, over at Kootenai Medical Center. She was in their outpatient surgery center. Um, and she ended up leaving. Um, but while she was there, something that she noticed was there was a, a gap of income, right? You've got your kind of entry-level techs who are, are making 12 to 15 bucks an hour. And then you've got your nurses who are making 30 to 60 bucks an hour, depending on their experience. And then you've got your surgeons and your supervisors who are making up to hundreds, if not thousands of dollars an hour on major surgeries. And something that she noticed was that all across that, um, those role gaps, whether you're making 15, 50, or $500 an hour, nearly every station wanted one more shift. I'd love a little bit of overtime. The point is, is that each income bracket was living up to their means, and it's displaying to us this trap that we often look in, like we often fall into. Once I've got that level of income, then life will be a breeze, right? And yet our lived experiences, we get there, and life just speeds up. My point with that example is that left unacknowledged and unchecked, the human appetite will always grow and it will leave us spent and hungry. And a really important question for me is, does Jesus of Nazareth have a better way of being human? Do you, with me, Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. This is Jesus coming as a teacher. 
protector and a savior. And he says this, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle, lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world, 2,000 years ago as well as today, is full of hurry and anxiety. It's full of consumption and landfills. And Jesus met this and meets this head on to provide a better alternative. He teaches, as a teacher, a way of simplicity. And this is a universal and orthodox Christian discipline. For centuries, Christians have been living under Jesus' wise teaching. They have acknowledged their appetites. They have checked and disciplined them in order to live full, peaceful lives with deep joy and meaning. Now, the reason I asked, how does this sermon title make you feel, is because it immediately makes me feel defensive and convicted. And uh, the last thing I want to do is look you in the eye this morning if you've barely got your nose above the waterline and say, do better. That, like that, I, I cannot do that to you. I won't do that to you. And Jesus of Nazareth comes as a teacher, and that's what I want for you. To come to the king of the universe that says, I am gentle and lowly, let me help you. So what is simplicity? Simplicity is not actually a choice, though the name gets a little confusing. It's not a choice between simplicity and complexity. Life is complex no matter what, right? And we all carry the burdens of life no matter what, which is why Jesus offers us two things. He offers us a yoke, which is a tool meant for carrying loads. So he offers us a way to carry burdens, and then he offers us his burden. So rather than the burdens that we accumulate and decide to load up, he's saying, no, I've got a very specific set of things I'm asking you to carry for the rest of your life. So the choice isn't simplicity or complexity. The choice is focus or distractedness. Simplicity, as Jesus defines it, is about which burdens we choose to carry and then how we choose to carry them. Beyond that more philosophical statement, simplicity is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is choosing to live in a way that's simple, that is unadorned. It's choosing to push back on the fear of missing out, to push back on the advertisements, to push back on the expectations of our culture in order to settle ourselves into the grace of Jesus, gospel, in order to settle ourselves into life-giving relationships with his people, community, in order to settle ourselves into what he's called us to do in the world, mission. So simplicity is to keep life focused, undistracted, uncluttered. This is not easy at all, but it's possible and it is good, more importantly. Now, quick disclaimer before I continue teaching. I, Trevor, am not a guru at this at all. I still wrestle with it. My wife and I wrestle with it. But we've been um, learning about this and, and doing our best to live this way over the past four years. And the fruit of our lives is obvious, isn't it? My wife's back there. Yes. The fruit, what we feel of our lives is obvious, which is why I want to share this with you. So importantly, before I get into some more practicals, simplicity is a means to an end. Simplicity is not the destination. So the destination of simplicity is to become a person of love in the kingdom of God. The destination is becoming a person of love in the kingdom of God, and the way of getting there, one of the ways of getting there is through simplicity. Another way of saying that, simplicity is a means to the end of contentedness and gladness. It's the means to the end of margin and rest and out of that passion. It's the means to the end of trust, generosity, and out of that impact in the world. It's the means to the end of rest, God's love and his provision, and the outflow of that is a life full of meaning. This is why we have our logo. You'll notice it on the bottom of the screen it is this kind of like scattered, cluttered, disorganized mess. 
And then it comes out of that to form the symbol of the Trinity. You'll hear me a couple times talk about Trinitarian love. The goal, the means to the end of simplicity is that rather than living a cluttered life, I become a person full of God's spirit, living his love out in the world. That's what that logo is for. So here's the roadmap of what to expect for the the rest of of my my teaching today. First, we're going to read Luke chapter 12 in order to hear Jesus's specific vision of simplicity. We want to learn from him as a teacher. And then I'm going to kind of apply that philosophically in three ways for understanding simplicity. It'll be high level, but we're going to look at simplicity of heart, simplicity of activity, and simplicity of stuff. So first, let's look at Jesus's vision of simplicity. And before I, I read a word, I want to again acknowledge disclaimer here. It is really hard to trust Jesus's vision. I acknowledge that his vision of the world is right while I don't really want to do it. It might be right, but I don't know if it's good. And the fact that I separate right and good is really scary. And I'm coming to Jesus to say, I don't know if I totally trust you. Would you help me? This is Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. The way I'm going to do this is kind of exposit it in real time. So read a paragraph or verse or two, and then I'll give you some interpretation thoughts. And we're just going to make our way through this pretty quick. So this is Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So you can see there's kind of a civic matter of someone's death. They're trying to figure out how do we divide this inheritance. And Jesus says, man me a judge or an arbiter over you. And then he pauses and gets to the root of the matter, and he says this in verse 15. Take care, be on your guard. Notice the double warning. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, or another translation, greediness. Because one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. This here is Jesus' statement of reality. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Be careful. There's more to your life than the possessions that you own, and you're in danger of being sucked into a trap of greediness. And then he continues, 16, and he told them a parable or a story, and he he jumps into this kind of sideline story. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He has excess, abundance, his business is going great. And so this man thinks to himself, well, what should I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, this is an interesting question because the the culture at this point did not include a tax-based welfare system. So the cultural assumption is when you do well and you have excess, you give to those in need around you. And so the fact that this successful man is even asking, what should I do with my excess, is an immediate indicator of his heart. Clearly, his greed has taken his mind off of the obvious good and off of the obvious delight of sharing and giving. And he has become self-focused. So verse 18, he does this. He says, here's what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And you see immediately his excess and his greed has shifted him from frugality and social responsibility into waste and self-concern. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice He's no longer interested in a lifelong contribution to God's kingdom or the people around him. His wealth has distracted him to focus on hedonism, pleasure, and ease. 20, but God says to him, fool, can be translated foolish or unwise one. This night your soul is required of you. Your time is up. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then Jesus pauses that story and he shifts to apply it for his disciples. So he just tells the story and now he's applying it in verse 22. And and Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. 
he's not just saying, turn off your anxiety. What he's saying is what you build your life on will affect your perspective. And then he continues 24. So consider the ravens, my students. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, the flowers. Right now, post falls, aren't the flowers beautiful? Jesus is saying, when you walk out these doors, consider the spring bloom, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon, this famous king, in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and then tomorrow's thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith, you my little faiths? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And I put emphasis on that word seek because another way of translating that is chase, run after, build your life for. So don't chase after these things, for your Father knows you need them. But instead, chase, seek, spend your life for his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then shepherd Jesus continues, fear not my little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And when I question if I trust Jesus' vision, it's important for me to remember Jesus here is not fundraising. He's not starting a nonprofit. He's not manipulating anyone. He's here as Savior and King to describe reality as it is in order to help people live an abundant life in the kingdom of God. He has no ulterior motive but to help people. And if I was going to summarize Jesus' teaching, I'd summarize this. This is his description of reality. That greediness is sneaky and dangerous. That life is more than our belongings. God is super generous. The good life is more than storing up pleasure and ease. And rather than live anxiously, we can trust God. And that the abundant life is seeking God's kingdom. And he will take care of the rest. If I was going to apply that, my first point of philosophical application, simplicity of heart. The other way I would say that is single-heartedness for the kingdom of God. Single-heartedness for the kingdom of God is Jesus' solution to foolish consumption and anxious hurry. Now, not only is this the moral way, like the right way, but it's actually the better way. It's the more abundant way, the more joyful way. This is the way of living that's most full of life and passion and energy, most full of meaning and contentedness and joy, according to Jesus. And if we are to take him seriously then, in order to experience this solution, we need to choose to seek the kingdom of God with our whole heart. So by default, we all tend to live disintegrated lives, right? Just meaning part of me wants this, another part of me wants that, right? And Jesus' solution here is to integrate all of those things in order to align them to choose first God's kingdom. And he ends by saying, where your treasure is, there your heart is also, right? Another way of saying that is, hey, you can't have a major part of your energy and investment over here and also be chasing me here. That, that's just disintegrated. It doesn't work that way. And when we um, do that, when we do accept this like split personality disintegration, we all are familiar with that and its frustrations and its freneticism. When we have conflicting values and, and uh, behaviors inside of us, I want to be generous, but I find myself stingy. I want to follow Jesus, but definitely not in this way. Now, here I'm not talking about being clumsy. We're all clumsy, right? 
We all have mixed motivations. I'm talking about being internally and intentionally out of alignment with ourselves. So to live in this like half of me here, half of me there, some of me there, without choosing to integrate it and put it towards the kingdom of God, that results in confusion and exhaustion because we're actively fighting ourselves or ignoring ourselves. Now, in contrast to that, consider the freedom in the that Jesus is offering in an integrated life. And this is what he's offering. Still a little bit clumsy, right? <laughs> Still clumsy, but now aligned. So all of me is striving in the same direction. I've got no conflicts of interest. And when I find one, I pull it back in and point it in the right direction. And that actually is, is not confusing nor exhausting because I'm not fighting myself. I now have a central place to work out of, my trust in God's presence, my pursuit of his kingdom, and my heart pulls what's out of alignment into alignment and now begins working in the same direction. And more and more, the joy of my life is that it is all about one thing. It's no longer about 20 competing things. It is about one life-giving thing. And now I get to contentedly participate in the work of God in the world as a single-hearted, simple-hearted person in the kingdom of God, living in the joy of receiving Trinitarian love and giving Trinitarian love. Second way we can apply this is simplicity of activity. And notice, we start in the heart. Out of our heart comes our decisions around our schedule, our activity. I want to add to uh, Jesus here, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. He's writing to a group of Christians, and in chapter 5, he's urging them, notice this, to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children walking in love. And then he warns them about living disintegrated. Part of me in the light, part of me in the dark. And then he lists some examples of fruitless living. And then he says this in Ephesians 5. This is uh, 15 through 17. To a group of Christians, he writes, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. I think it's fair to say not as disintegrated, but as integrated. Because the days are, oh, excuse me. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I think we can break that into three quick things. Remember, um, Paul here is writing about don't live unwisely, but live wisely. Remember Jesus' teaching about the foolish rich person? And at the end of that, God says, you fool, why would you live this way? Both Jesus and Paul are pointing out a wise way of living. And then Paul says this line. He says, make the best use of the time. And importantly here, he's not saying make the most efficient use of the time. Cram it in, get it done, go for it. What he's really saying is purposefully align yourself with the kingdom of God and use each opportunity to seek God's kingdom. Make the best use of the time. Align yourself with God's kingdom. Use the opportunities to do so and to live out of that. And then last, it says, don't live foolishly, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And as I, without even interpreting, or interpreting that, my first response is, well, like, what other way would I want to live? Half in and half out of the will of God? That, not only does that sound potentially sinful, that just sounds frustrating. It sounds like self-destruction. To live out of alignment, half in, half out of the will of God. And now, I've got a, a quick illustration. Um, bear with me. I've got a couple of points I want to make out of this. Can you guys see me okay over here? Great. Um, here is my illustration. Maybe you, you have seen this before, um, but bear with me. I've got a little twist. This is us. This is our life, right? We've got a, a set amount of capacity, and we've got some responsibilities and load in our life. And so... One, one bowl, uh, a bowl full of rice. This can represent the clutter, the small, um, the small things in life. And then I've got a bowl of rocks. These represent the priorities and the most important parts of life. Now, one way of living is to not make the most of the time, and I let the small things, the clutter of my life, fill up my schedule. And then afterwards, I go, oh, yeah, I forgot. I really want to spend time. 
family, I really want to serve, I really want to whatever. And then we kind of do this, and we add in the important things of life, and we realize it doesn't quite work. Now, one way of applying make the most use of the time, well, real quick, this, by the way, that's what's called the tyranny of the urgent. The urgent things running your life without the most important things running your life. Now, another way of doing this is if we actually make the most of the time and we say, what are the priorities in my life? And I schedule those things first. I put them into my life first, and then I let all the excess clutter, not all of this is clutter, some of this is feeding the kids and doing the dishes, right? And then I let this fill in the gaps. And if you kind of shake it up a little bit, make sure all the things fit, and now you realize, oh, look, it all fits. It's actually pretty cool, right? <laughs> Ta-da! Now, that would be great. That would be great. But there's, I think, more that the wisdom of Jesus offers us. I think the wisdom of Jesus offers us the important awareness that this is us. This can hold 32 ounces. No more. Genesis 1 says that God took dirt and out of that dirt, that dust, that, that terra firma, he made man. Now, one simple way of understanding that is he made us as finite physical beings. And we cannot exceed the boundaries of our limitation. And if you try to do that, the jar breaks. And it's not a good life. It's not an abundant life. And one other thing that is beautiful that Scripture teaches us is that our finiteness, the fact that we're made out of the dirt, is a gift. Because when I recognize I am limited, it makes me comfortable in accepting of the fact that I need beyond myself. And that makes me reach outward toward God and others in order to experience loving, reciprocal relationship. And if I have no need, I don't do that. So God gives us beautiful, finite boundaries as a gift. Now, another way we can acknowledge this is, well, let me see what my third one was. Here we go. Another important thing to acknowledge, especially here in the West, is this is not the platter of our lives. This is the platter of our lives. And so the question is not so much about how do you fit everything in, so much as what are you going to leave out? Additionally, I just want to say, well, actually, let me talk about that a little bit more. My family is what we in the Zycheck house called uh, being fitter inners. And so my parents did learn this illustration, you know, a couple decades ago. So they taught us, hey, you schedule your priorities first. You schedule your family and your time with God and your job. And, and then you schedule your, your playtime and your spontaneity. Great, 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 great. And we, we fit it all in and we really manage our schedules well. Oh, yeah, I could do one more thing. Yeah, sure, I could do that responsibility. Oh, that friendship, that sounds really important. Yeah, okay, maybe a little bit, yes, oh yeah, serve teams. I would love to join it. Oh, you know what, I'll lead a serve team. Here we go. <laughs> You're welcome. What we need to come to terms with is we cannot accomplish it all, nor can we enjoy it all. There is more on the platter of life. Our dreams, our aspirations, our pleasures, there is more on the platter of life than we could ever fit into a 30-ounce, finite human container. And Jesus says this is good somehow because it helps us live purposeful lives, not cluttered lives. Now, one more illustration from this because we all realize this doesn't look great, Right? But I think we would also mostly recognize that this doesn't look super great either.
where the magic happens. This is where play and rest and energy and joy comes, is when our lives have extra space. And there are seasons, right? You guys know this, where you're getting a master's degree and you've got this stuff, but then there needs to be intentional, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to make some margin, right? This is where we find time and space for delighting in the gospel, community, delighting in mission, and where we become people of Trinitarian love. We do not become people of Trinitarian love when we are maxed out at a zero balance of our time and energy. Which leads us to the last application, simplicity of stuff. Uh, I'm going to go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, uh, in his introduction, he says this, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness or greediness, for one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is talking about stuff, right? And our culture has convinced us of a couple things that we might not even be aware of. So I just want to point them out and and point us to Jesus' alternative. First, our culture assumes or has, has taught us that purchase and consumption have become how they are, how we define the good life. The good life is when you can do and have what you want, when you don't have to stretch the budget, but when you've got the ability to go and get. That's when you've made it. And Jesus instead is offering an abundant life that is entirely free to everybody. You don't need the degree. You don't need the income. You don't need the purchases. You don't need the economic infrastructure. I guarantee you, I've got more access to stuff than someone living in the jungles of the Amazon. Simply by being born in Las Vegas. And Jesus is offering a good life to everybody on the planet that is entirely paid for by him. It does not require production or income to receive it. Second thing that we experience in our culture is that it's taught us that purchase and consumption are how we define ourselves. And it's also one of the primary ways we express who we are and our values, right? Do you wear Chacos? Do you wear Chinos? Do you drive a Mercedes? Do you drive a Subaru? Right? We have our graphic tees that tell you exactly what I believe. Or we have our brands. If, if I identify as an athletic person, I'm probably, what do you think I'm going to buy? Nike, Lululemon, Right? so that you know I'm an athletic person. If I'm an earthy person, I'm going to get the Chacos, I'm going to hit the, the Columbia store, I'm going to go, let you know I have an REI membership, right? Because that's how I define myself. My wife and I went canoeing yesterday, by the way. We're real <clears throat> outdoorsy. Anyways, um, <laughs> my point is, we kind of take for granted that we, we use our money to put onto us things that tell others who we are. And Jesus is offering us an identity in his kingdom and a way of expressing who we really are that's not based on what you wear or what you can afford. A way of genuine joy and expression that does not restrict you based on your income. The third thing that our our culture kind of teaches is that purchase and consumption is how we recreate. Now, you might look at me a little sideways, but here, let me put this to you. Do we not, this is me, don't we spend more time researching, shopping for, organizing, storing, and maintaining our hobbies than we do enjoying them? I think my hobby at this point is organizing my stuff, if I'm honest. And Jesus here is offering the freedom to choose a small list of simple things that you get to regularly experience joy from with very little hassle. He's offering the ability to choose a few simple things that regularly give you joy with very little hassle. Now, there are an upper class, an upper middle class, a middle class, and a poverty line way of living, hurry and consumption. You can live hurried and consumeristic no matter what your station in life is. It'll look different. It'll feel a little different. But we can all get sucked into it. 
So as we, as you kind of assess your life, and in a couple minutes we'll look at some application, uh, my suggestion is don't base your assessment or your desires off comparison. I don't have two jet skis, a boat, a four by four, and a 60 by 80 shop. And my life is cluttered. And I can be a little consumeristic. And I would like to address that with the grace of Jesus. So for you, if you are interested in this, my recommendation is don't compare. Simply ask Jesus to reveal where there is distraction and clutter in your life. My last point is that the gospel exists because of Jesus' simplicity. The gospel is that the kingdom of God is open to us free of charge because Jesus came. And he came single-heartedly for the kingdom of God. He substituted himself into our place of consequence and then pays out of his own righteousness in order to make us holy. And he does this so that everyone who comes to him in faith is embraced, satisfied, and accepted. But consider the alternative. What if Jesus came to hoard? What if Jesus lived a disintegrated life of clutter, distraction, and greed, oh yeah, and saving some folks? Our hope in the entire world is that Jesus was simple-hearted. And he denied the things crying for his attention and his desire in order to make space for us in his kingdom. And so as our hope in our life as well as our death isn't that we live immaculate, uncluttered, simple lives. That's not our hope. Our hope is placed in that the Son of God devoted himself to one thing, and that was to open the kingdom of God free of charge to all who come to him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, even now I struggle to orient my life and, and absorb this, and yet it, it's touching something that I, I know is part of the fabric of the universe. This is part of reality. Um, would you teach me, would you teach us how to live with joy and contentedness in a very countercultural way? but it is very integrated in, the, in line with the kingdom of God. So would you come, teach us, shape us, help us find joy in you. And give us patient, patience for ourselves and people in our homes if we're interested in this, not to just heap shame on ourselves, but to come to you for relief and renewal. Amen. Here's how we're going to spend the next bit of time. Um, we're going to do four minutes of individual reflection time. This is an opportunity for you to write down some thoughts, journal, pray. And then I'm going to come back up, give you short five to six minutes of application, real concrete. So if you're interested, here's your next step. And then we're going to have 10 minutes of community conversation where you get to discuss with the people around you. Um, I'll explain that in a little bit. But for now, I hope you enjoy a little bit of time. Uh, spend some time in prayer, journaling. I'll see you in four minutes. If you are interested in practicing what Jesus teaches around simplicity and seeking first the kingdom of God, here are a couple of just like real practicals. I'm going to kind of gun at you. Take what's helpful. Ignore what's not. Um, here's what I uh, would just so you know. We're going to start with in opposite order. So in the teaching, we started simplicity of heart, then activity, then stuff. We're going to flip-flop that for ease. It's easy to talk about stuff, what we do with the stuff in our garage, right? And then we're going to look at activity and then heart. And we'll do this pretty quick. Now, it's important to know, if, one, that simplicity is unique and super adaptable. The goal isn't that we all walk out with the exact same wardrobe and closet layout, right? The goal is that we all create space for Trinitarian love. Now, importantly, do not start where you think you should be. Start where you're at. And then decide to make a few steps that are invigorating and realistic. It's not helpful to be like, I'm going to clear out everything. Just, okay, what's one thing that's invigorating and realistic? And let's start there. This is a lifelong process. So make a simple plan. Share it with someone that's life-giving for you. Maybe ask for help if you've got some projects. So first, stuff. So 
It's important to talk, like when we're talking about simplicity, minimalism, uh, minimalism of stuff, simplicity of stuff is not a design style. We're not talking about contemporary, modern aesthetic. You don't need to go out and spend $3,000 on a new minimalist couch. That's not what we're talking about, right? You can do simplicity out of Goodwill, or you can do simplicity out of Ikea, simplicity out of boutique, whatever. Bare bones, simplicity means this. Letting go of stuff and purchasing less. That's all that it means. Now, we are physical beings, right? And we are affected by our physical environments. Gloominess, brightness, all of that has an effect on us. And so an easy application of simplicity is to aim to own very few things. Make it a goal to own very few things. And what this does, because we're physical beings, is it literally gets rid of clutter in our lives. And I know when my home is messy, it feels like a giant anxious to-do list. But when it's organized and simple, I feel a little bit more at peace. I feel a little bit of space where I can think, I can read, I can play, I, do, I can spend time with my kids rather than cleaning, right? And so our physical space matters, and if we unclutter our physical space, we will literally feel more peace. So very simply, uh, so actually here, so, um, here's where I would suggest to start. If you're interested in just removing stuff, start super simple on one space. Pick a closet, pick a bathroom, pick like the kitchen, right? Pick a small space that's simple that you don't feel a lot of emotional attachment to and then go to town, get after it. Do I really need eight bottles of sunscreen? Probably not, right? So um, let's talk really quickly about two categories, buying less and giving stuff away. First, buying less. Um, one, if we're gonna talk about small items and buying less small items, simply start with this. Notice small purchases and ask, do I need this? Where is this going to be in one month? If you're considering larger purchases, it's really helpful to invite your community to chime in. And some of you just shuddered. Ask people if I should buy that car. Um, invite your community, the people you trust, and say, hey, ask me these questions. Why do you want this, Trevor? Why do you want it? What are you hoping that it will fulfill? Is there other sideline stressors or something that you are coping with or looking for an out with this? Another helpful question is just ask, will this large purchase clarify your time and your purpose in life? Or will this large purchase simply distract through its maintenance or even its enjoyment? Will it become something just to manage in your life? Now, that's buying less stuff, small stuff, big stuff. But what if we start talking about just giving away stuff? Um, there can be a very genuine burden when you try to let go of things, both emotionally and practically. So here are two things that can help. First, letting go of things emotionally. You can separate any items you're looking to simplify into three categories. A keep pile, a go pile, and a I'm not sure yet pile. So... The keep things, put them back in the closet, great. The go things, take them to Goodwill, great. Or sell them on Poshmark. The not sure yet things, put them in a box or a bag and then put them in the basement, the, uh, the garage, put them somewhere where you're not gonna interact with it much and set a timer on your phone for three to six months. And if during that three to six months, you remember, oh yeah, that sweater, go get it. Put it on, enjoy it. But if at the end of three or six months, your timer goes out and you've not thought once about those items, odds are you will probably not miss them in your life and you'll notice when you come back to them, your emotional attachment is way less. It's no longer, but this is the sweater I wore on our first date. You can come back to and go, yeah, actually, I don't need that. <laughs> I'm not trying to be harsh, but um, emotionally, that can really help. Practically, practically, uh, start in an area, I think I already said this, but start in an area that's small and easy. You can wrap your head around it, right? Closet, bathroom, maybe pick one dresser. Just start with that. Maybe start in the shed or the garage. Um, so set aside some time with your family if it's helpful. Pull everything out, go through it one by one, and then sort it into those three categories, right? Keep, go, not sure yet. Now, last thing practically, getting rid of stuff can turn into this weird, uh, like, hoarding and guilt-inducing process. 
but I can't let it go, right? But it's worth money. What am I going to do with it, right? Or, gosh, someone gave this to me. I'm not sure if I can give it up, right? So we both get anxious hoarding and guilt. And, or for me, oh, if I'm going to give this thing away, I have to fix it first. I have to clean it first. If I'm going to give it away, I can't give it away as it is, right? And very simply, we probably should. We can remove that responsibility of I have to clean it first. I have to fix it first. We can simply give it away. And in a weird way, this is a form of generosity. Is not trying to get the most out of it before you give it away. I don't need to fix it, sell it, and then have it out of my house. I can simply let it go and someone else will enjoy it. So maybe you've got the thing that's worth some money but you've, you start doing that and now you've got 15 things that you've got to clean and list and meet people and that's its own annoying to-do list. So simply, yeah, it's worth some money and I'm just going to give it away. Now, let's talk about activity. So that's stuff, here's some activity. First, I want to acknowledge that not all of us love to spend money, but some of us are project people. And we take on projects and simply we need to ask, is this really worth my time? I've got 10 hours a month. Is this what I want those 10 extra hours a month to be on? Is fixing up this old table saw or whatever you have in your garage. Be careful about projects. Second, when we're considering commitments, for me, it is very helpful, going back to this analogy, is not to assume that everything in this jar needs to be in the jar. It can be very helpful to literally empty the jar in your mind, and say, Jesus, what do you want to be in my life? And then just start adding important things and take the necessities, the clutter, feeding the kids. But it could be that this rock is a priority and it actually is not part of the kingdom of God and it is not serving you or your family well right now, even if it's a good thing. And so this needs to go in order to create margin, which you and your family actually need more than this. Now, when it comes to work, oh, I just want to go back on when it comes to commitments, there's a very big difference between flaking out on someone and acknowledging your limits and backing out. There's a very big difference between those two things and how you do it. Third thing, work. Now, I, I'm hesitant on this one, but one thing that a friend of mine in college, his dad was a, a high-level police officer over in Seattle, and um, maybe like 20, 25 years into his career, he was offered the ability to become a police chief. And my friend's dad declined a $50,000 pay raise. And he said, my family's too important. This is going to overload me, and this is not going to serve my family or the kingdom of God well. And so 25 years into his career, he declined the largest promotion of his lifetime in order to be simple-hearted for the kingdom of God and care for his family. Fourth thing you can do is decide to explore the Sabbath. Explore the Sabbath day. Jesus himself said God gave the Sabbath to man as a gift. Enjoy his gift. The Sabbath is just one day of scheduled, prioritized day of margin. If you're wondering, how do I put margin in my life? One-seventh a day, that's a great way to put some margin in your life. And it's a great place to start. A little Sabbath, if this interests you, a little Sabbath moniker that is helpful for my family. Sabbath means this. We rest, we play, no work, God loves us. That's what Sabbath is for us. We rest, we play, we don't do any work because God loves us. So if you are interested in more, I've got some resources here in a little bit. Last one, simplicity of heart. Now, this is the most vague and intangible, but the most helpful thing I think I can give you is this. And this sounds really obvious, but the very first step of simplicity of heart is choosing to seek God's kingdom. It is not going to happen by accident. It needs to become the main intention of our lives to seek and choose God's kingdom before all else. All of us are mixed bags of intention and motivation, but there's a very big difference between being a mixed bag and someone who is willfully rejecting God in an area of our lives. And if we align, if we choose God's kingdom and we pull everything out of alignment into alignment, 
It means our life becomes simplified around a singular aim, and it removes confusion and internal conflict. It's not easy, it's not perfect, it's still complex, but now it is aligned around one singular thing, and the result is we will become people of Trinitarian love rather than scattered and distracted. We'll become content and humble rather than hurried and anxious. Now, your next step, what we're about to do is we're going to take 10 minutes, engage as a community, right? We believe that uh, church is the family that we belong to, not the event that we attend. This is our opportunity to practice that we believe these people are for us, able to be our friends. We can have good, hard dialogue with them. Uh, so you can answer, if it's helpful, um, the, uh, the stuff on this page, week four. But also in the back, I believe it's page 26, there's this section of community, living as a family of God. And there's two questions on the bottom. The first, this is for your, your personal discipleship plan. Those questions are this. Is there an area of simplicity that you can act on in the next seven days? And then second question, are there areas that need a longer runway or more preparation? So those are some things you can consider for yourself personally and the people around you. If you, oh, we're going to do five minutes. I'm getting a wave. Uh, so we're going to do five minutes for that. If you are like, no go, I'm not talking to strangers, great, grab a cup of coffee, go to the bathroom, we'll see you in a minute for communion, but I really encourage you, enjoy the people around you. Um, Here's some resources on the screen. I'll leave those up for about 30 seconds so you can take a look, and with that, I hope you enjoy your conversation. It is great just seeing the, the buzz in the room. I'm glad you guys are enjoying conversation. Feel free, if, you, if you're like really chasing something down, you know, after service, stick around, have that conversation. Um, but also, I've got some of those resources. Would you guys put those resources just on the screen one more time? Um, if you've got something you're interested in, uh, Bridgetown Church out of Portland does some great teaching series, both on simplicity and Sabbath. They attach both of those things in like eight weeks, but man, they've reoriented my wives in my life. Ruthless Elimination by Comer, great. Do More Better by Chalice, great. And then The Common Rule is really great book. So <clears throat> here's how we're going to end. And I'll just actually, going backwards, one more thing, I'll say this. Um, in the conversation I was part of listening in on, uh, the comment was made, man, our culture is just like pressing, pressing, pressing. This is what's normal. This is what you're supposed to do. Margin, simplicity, and Sabbath are potentially one of the most countercultural decisions you can make as a disciple. It will be hard. And, but again, this is a lifelong process as we're modifying, tweaking, changing. It's not all do it right now. It's start where you're at, make some changes, aim for the kingdom of God. That's our most important thing, is not clean the closet, fix the schedule. The most important thing is aim for the kingdom of God.